1: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, January 10th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump today in his usual speech with a whirring engine behind him. So as to mask the wheezing, Uh, I think, asking for a... (laughs) So after saying everything was peachy dory yeah firm and dandy donald trump then channeled a great president of the past when he quoted harry truman's edict with just a slight variation the buck stops with everybody yes everybody says that about the buck Nobody's talking about how Harry Truman never said that. And yes, who could forget the classic decree, ask not what your country can do for you, but what everybody can do for you. The only thing we have to fear is things themselves. But for all the fractured syntax and, of course, outright falsehoods, I think Trump sometimes escapes the usual scrutiny we would apply to a political claim. Of course, it's understandable. You put in the time, you do the research to find out, oh yeah, this thing he was saying was a lie. But still, if not even for him, for us, sometimes it makes sense to take a central claim of his and say, well, is this is this really true? So I was intrigued by this thing he said today. I, be- I really believe the, the steel barrier or wall would pay for itself every three or four months and maybe even better than that in terms of overall now if you want to hear a cleaner version we have this from his oval office speech i want you to know that after he makes the claim about the barrier paying for itself he tags it with a different preposterous set of words in terms of overall Uh, okay here's the oval office the border wall would very quickly pay for itself The cost of illegal drugs exceeds $500 billion a year, vastly more than the $5.7 billion we have requested from Congress. The wall will also be paid for indirectly by the great new trade deal we have made with Mexico. Okay. Now about the wall paying for itself, set aside the Mexico nonsense. I did some research quite stupidly, I would say. And guess what? It's not true. But how the calculation was made was a little bit interesting. The president was talking about the cost of the wall offsetting the cost of drugs. So wall equals less drugs equals good investment. But a lot of things wrong with this. Illegal entry from illegal points of entry contribute very little to the drug supply. Most of the drugs that do come in from the southern border come in through legal points of entry. Also, if the wall won't work, it's not going to stop that. But a few months ago, when he was saying the wall will pay for itself, it was stemming from a report that was done for the by the Center for Immigration Studies, the CIS, which is pretty much against immigration. And here's how they calculated that the wall would pay for itself. The CIS puts the average lifetime cost to local, state, and federal governments of border crossers, in other words, the cost of government benefits minus the cost or the, the, the amount they pay in taxes, including payroll taxes, they put the cost at $74,000 in today's dollar per person crossing. And then they assume that the border wall would prevent one hundred sixty to 200,000 illegal crossings. My eyebrow was raised too over the next 10 years. Therefore, they said the wall would be a net savings of 12 to 15 billion a year. Here's the problem. So Trump started saying the wall's gonna pay for itself, and they then he submitted a request to pay for the wall, and it was 18 billion. So as soon as he did that, he destroyed this talking point. Unless you do that clever thing that he does, which is just lie about it anyway. But also, as I looked into it, the $74,000 cost of immigrants minus taxes. It doesn't take into account the many, many studies that show the children of immigrants are a big net boon to the economy. And also there's this, you know, we have a federal deficit. What that literally means is that the average American is taking in more services. I mean, you don't think of servicing the debt or maybe even paying for the war in Iraq as a service. But yeah, the average American pays less in taxes than America as a whole gets in services. So in other words, we're all a net drain on the economy given how the federal government spends money. And here's a general rule of thumb that goes way beyond the wall way beyond tax cuts paying for themselves, and it's this. Because it's also true of when Obama was talking about the ACA or this new idea of Medicare for All. Rule of thumb, government programs that promise to pay for themselves never pay for themselves. Now, this doesn't mean that government programs aren't worth it. They might lead to better outcomes for Americans. They could be worthy. But everything that we want has costs. It's not like they don't have costs. We'd like the benefits, but we also have to pay the costs. And it's naive and childlike to pretend we don't have to pay the costs. We'd be better off as a country if we engage in a discussion about what benefits we want at what price, rather than magically telling ourselves that nothing will actually cost anything, because this also leads us to believe the only reason that anyone opposes anything is because they're bad people, or venal, or have a buck to make off of you. Or, so I'm advocating for the good discussion, and maybe electing our officials based on that good discussion. There's another, a whole nother way to look at it, similar to the way that Trump looked at it when his talking point was destroyed. We could just lie. We could just lie about everything. That's the strong move, because otherwise you come off as mamby-washy, wishy-pamby, you know, or just crazy, all Pell Skelter, Helter mell if you know what I'm saying. On the show today, I will spiel about the slick rhymes that Kellyanne Conway spits. But first... The life of journalist Marie Colvin was spent largely in war zones, bringing back stories that few others dared pursue. The story of her life is told in the film A Private War. It stars a Rosamund Pike as Colvin. Pike was just nominated for a Golden Globe. She might get a Best Actress nomination at the Academy Awards for this portrayal. A Private Wars director, Matthew Heineman, came by to discuss the film and his career as documentarian-turned-feature director.
0: to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com/system
1: A private war is the story of journalist Marie Colvin who was killed in Syria in 2012 let me read what a Sunday Spectator correspondent wrote Ironically, her death in a mortar attack made her far more celebrated than she'd ever been in life, not just among fellow women who admired her courage, but among people who'd never normally read the foreign sections. That is actually not an irony. That is what happens in these situations. A journalist spends a life putting herself in danger, bearing witness, and if that journalist lives, she just goes on to the next war. That was Marie Colvin's story until finally her actions caught up with her. In 2012. A new movie about her entitled A Private War, directed by Matthew Heineman, is out now. He is the director of the documentaries Cartel Land and City of Ghosts. Marie Colvin is played by Rosamund Pike in this documentary, and she does a great job. Matthew Heineman is here with me. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So I'm from Long Island, and when Marie Colvin, whose work I was very familiar with, died, I found out she was from Oyster Bay, which is just north of the Seaford Oyster Bay Expressway, and I was shocked. I was shocked. I could not believe she was from Long Island. What Long... She just seemed like a globetrotting English woman. What were the Long Island parts of her?
2: I mean, she grew up in Long Island. She yeah. she went to high school there. She went to Yale. And then she, you know, started her career, and you know, pretty soon after, moved to London. But
1: doesn't she just seem, or didn't she seem to you, a, a, absolutely a product of the British press system, where they take a lot of chances, where they're swashbuckling, where they drink a lot? I mean, that's what that seems to me to be have been her milieu.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, she spent her whole career there and, and lived there and worked there. And that was her identity and obviously her, her friend group, friend, you know, and her colleagues. And yeah, that's that's the world that she, she lived in and, and grew up in and, and, you know, became known for. You know, she's much more well known in the UK, obviously, than, yeah. than she is here.
1: Yeah. So your last two documentaries were Cartel Land about the Mexican cartels and Cities of Ghost, which was also about journalists in the Middle East. So, did you know of her and her work before you came to this project?
2: I knew of her I knew of her work i didn't know her personally i th- When I first was approached about making this film and, and sent an early draft of the script uh, it just spoke to me in such a profound way you know i i in my work um you know i've been to dangerous places i've 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 felt that same sort of perverse draw to go you know and put yourself at risk to tell a story and then the effects that that has on you, sort of mentally and physically, and and so in that sense, I empathized with her. I I think I also empathized with her desire to sort of put a human face to to conflicts around the world, and also just the timeliness of it. I felt like, you know, given the state of journalism today, that journalism and journalists are under attack. You know, it was quite a timely story to be told.
1: So you had only done you were a documentary filmmaker, and this is your first feature film. Yes. Did you specifically want to get into feature films, or was this the story that convinced you to get into feature films?
2: Yeah, more the latter. I think you know. I think some documentary filmmakers, it's sort of a gateway drug to to features, right? To Hollywood. Uh, for me, I, I love docs. I want to continue to make docs. You know, and I, I think I've I've tried in my documentaries to make them f- in some way feel like narratives and and a um, sort of reverse way. I've tried to make my first narrative feel like a doc. And, you know, I think the world is is so malleable and and the form is so malleable that, you know, it's exciting to me. And, you know, it's exciting just to be able to tell stories and tell stories that matter to me. And so whether they're in the form of a doc or narrative going forward, you know, I hope to be able to do both.
1: Well, in order to keep faith with the subject and the subject matter, it had to have a documentary feel, I think it did.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I... I can't escape my past. And I tried to bring as much of my documentary ethos into the process of making this film, creating you know, an environment on set that, that allowed for improvisation. You know, all the war zones were shot in Jordan and all the extras I spent weeks and weeks interviewing, finding refugees from the various countries we were depicting. So that when Rosamund Pike walks into a shelter for women and children in the besieged city of Holmes, the women that she speaks to are real women, really from Homes. Livy and Jordan where were filming, and they were telling their real stories, they're shedding real tears and you know the second woman that she speaks to, who says, you know, I don't just want this to be words on paper, I want the whole right. world to understand what we're going through. That's her speaking to Rosmond, but that's her speaking to all of us.
1: And the one who said, I was so disturbed and stressed out that I couldn't produce breast milk. Was that her story? Yes,
2: that was her real story. Literally.
1: And so you hadn't scripted that beforehand.
2: We had scripted something that was similar based on an article that Maria had written. Right. And I, I was able to find someone who had that very similar story.
1: And did you match the other war zones? So she's in a bunch of war zones in her life and in this movie. Did you do what you could to match the extras or... You know, background players, or even people with a few lines, to those who are in those specific situations.
2: Yes. Oh wow. Yes. I mean, at at least being from the country that you know. So when we're in Iraq, Iraqis were from the the, the women who are wailing in Iraq. You know, those are real women from Iraq, reliving real trauma, and they're
1: all there in Jordan that you can as refugees, as refugees from one camp. How did you go about finding the right refugees? I understand like scouting for locations, and even you have a casting director, but i 've never heard of something like this
2: yeah, it was, I mean it was really important to me you know I, I wanted that authenticity, I wanted that real emotion, I wanted that heightened sense of emotion on set, and you know there's a scene later in the film in, in a hospital when a young man brings in his his two year old boy who ends up dying, and that footage ends up going on to a her final broadcast with Anderson Cooper. That man again. I spent weeks finding him. He was also from Holmes. Uh, his two-year-old nephew was shot off his shoulders and bled out in front of him. And so the trauma and the grief that he brought onto that set was almost unbearable. And at one point, Rosman, you know, walked walked off set and was like, "I don't know what are we doing. This is, you know, are are, are we exploiting this man? You know, the, the lines between documentary and fiction are so." blurred uh, you know i don't i don't know how to handle this really and i said to her look you know this is something that i deal with on a daily basis in making documentaries is you have this human instinct to want to give someone a hug or to give them the space but your job is to capture these moments as was marie's job and as your job here is is playing marie and he wouldn't be here if he didn't want his story to be told so it's okay
1: I would imagine most directors have a long history in most most feature film directors, most fictionalized film, narrative film directors have this history where they know a lot about character and drama. They know how to dramatize situations and they know how to express character. Maybe the parts of a film like this that they'd be less familiar with are how to depict a war zone and how to show uh, convey ex- excitement and uncertainty while still orienting the audience whereas your skill set is the exact inverse. Uh, you you probably are good at understanding character because you interview people and then you present their characters in documentary films but in this case you were working with real material but also trying to draw out and establish a character. How Were you self-guided in how you did that? Did you seek any other films or any other gurus to figure out how to present a uh, character in a narrative film since this is the first time you were doing that.
2: Yeah, I guess I'd first just start by addressing the the first thing you said. You know, I think a lot of people think that documentaries, you just sort of you know sit there and turn the camera on, and then suddenly it becomes a documentary. I mean, there's a lot of directing that happens in a documentary, and the types of documentaries that I make are quite visual. Right. Uh, you know, they're not they're not interview based; they're experiential, in which I try to you know construct and elicit. You know, a character arc, you know, s- you know, deeply personal stories of people who are going through, you know, conflicts, which are the same as what happens in narrative films. So I, I think, you know, what I've tried to do in the documentary space was also quite applicable to-, yes. to this experience.
1: But the way I would look at it is the difference between invention and discovery. Or maybe in the documentary, you're a sculptor and you're chipping away what's extra what doesn't need to be there. With this, you're inventing the person. You're using the real material, but you're also making choices about the dialogue in their mouth. And the framing of a shot is not just what's really happening, and then you make a choice. You decide how to frame a shot.
2: Totally, but you still make all those decisions when when you're shooting a doc. Yeah. You know, anytime you, you know, press... The on and off button. And anytime you rack focus, anytime you reframe, you're injecting subjectivity. Anytime you press a button in the edit room, you're injecting subjectivity. So no matter how pure you say you are, you're injecting a sense of of, of you know subjectivity and, and sculpting, as you would say, in, into the process of of making a documentary. But yes, of course, in 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 making a narrative film, it's it's on a, just a much larger scale, and there's there's a you know a thousand decisions you're making. I think the you know, the biggest difference, obviously, is you're creating a world right. as opposed to filming a world. Right. Um, so you have to, you know, build that world from scratch. You have to build the sets from sh- scratch. But, you know, for the most part, especially in the war zones, we we shot on unreal locations. And, you know, it wasn't a huge budget film, so we had to... You know, use what what you know what we had.
1: So, if you have if the scene is in homes and it's an alley or a street and there's rubble strewn everywhere, you'd have to dress the set to make it look like like homes looked.
2: Yeah, like we didn't we that wasn't shot on a stage. That was shot on. But the basic
1: uh, infrastructure of the buildings is what was really there in Jordan.
2: Totally. So that was a that was an abandoned construction site in which we dressed. Sort of, we had the money to dress the first floor. And then the rest we had to use CGI to to make it look authentic. But yeah, when they're you know when they're driving through homes, again the, the the first floor and all the rubble is is stuff that we brought in and that we created. And you know we spent months and months and months and months preparing for the film in an effort to make those experiences feel like you're on the ground with them. I was very very fortunate to work with Bob Richardson, um, my DP, who who shot everything from. Platoon to Born on Fourth of July to Hugo to Aviator to you know a lot of Oliver Stone and Scorsese and Tarantino's films over the years, and he actually started out shooting docs, and so it was really exciting for him to go back sort of to his roots. Um, He shot a documentary in El Salvador, which is why Oliver Stone tapped him to shoot Salvador, and and that's what started his career as a you know one of the most accomplished DPs ever. So working with him was, was a such an honor and, and 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 privilege and I learned, you know, a ton from him. But we spent going back to your original question, we spent months and months and months, you know, watching every war film we could, watching every film that we you know, even just films that we liked or didn't like, analyzing them, analyzing what you know, what we connected with and what mm-hmm. we didn't connect with and sort of developing that visual aesthetic with which we shot the film. Similarly with with Sophie Beecher, our our production designer, just dug into those worlds and and you know sent around you know thousands of of reference images and you know down to the details of of the rugs in the you know in the media center down to the graffiti on the walls in Libya like you know everything was based on some reference image that we found and you know every single pixel every single frame mattered to me. I really wanted you to feel like you are on the ground experiencing what her, what, you know, her life was like. And I, I did not want to make a biopic. I wanted to make a psychological thriller in which you are inside this woman's head, trying to understand what pushes someone to go to the most dangerous places on earth to cover these stories. And then the effects that that had on her mentally and physically.
1: Matthew Heineman is the director of A Private War. Uh, the story of Marie Colvin starring Rosemond Pike. In early February, it'll be out digitally if you wish to catch it then. Thank you so much, Matthew.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And now the spiel. In the top of the show, I talked about the piece of Trump's face called his mouth. Now I want to talk about Trump's mouthpiece to wit Kellyanne Conway. I'm being very generous, and I will be. Listen to this. So there was a story in the New York Times the other day, and I realized something. The story was actually about Bill Shine, the White House communications chief, and Maggie Haberman did the thing that reporters do. They call the subject of the story's colleagues, get a good quote, something to flesh out the profile, and Kellyanne got back to Haberman via text, and here's what she said. Donald Trump is an irrepressibly press-savvy communications-centric president. Ms. Conway said. Of Mr. Shine, she added that he, quote, has a gut for what sells and an eye for what compels. A gut for what sells and an eye for what compels. It sounds like the patter of a song by candor and Ebb. Hey, have you heard the news? He's got a gut for what sells. But oh, what the hell? I think that's pretty swell. But it's also an insight into Kellyanne Conway. Why does she do the job she does because she believes In Trump's agenda, probably, yeah, because she lacks a moral compass. Doesn't seem to have a good one. But also, I think that by turning the gig she has into occasional bouts of slam poetry, she finds sustenance. It gets her through the next day. That seems to be the Kellyanne game plan. If you look at the record, so many other examples of Kellyanne rhyming abound. And I don't think she does this for us. I don't think the rhymes gain much traction. I think she does it for herself. So she let this one loose on Chris Cuomo back when he was talking about an aspect of the Mueller investigation. She talked about the snark and bark against the president. A lot of snark and bark. Snark and bark. And then a few weeks ago, she let loose with this line about Nancy Pelosi, who was at the time vacationing in Hawaii while simultaneously failing to fund border security.
0: Nancy Pelosi needs to come back from Hawaii. Less
1: hula, more mula. And then last summer, she told George Stephanopoulos this. You've got conclusion and no collusion. Oh, also, please note the denies and lies. That, she could workshop that into a rhyme. I mean, she could go double rhyme within a sentence, very Cole Porter-esque. But of course, the conclusion, collusion riff, that was just a brief glimpse into the epic poetry that she shared with us all via Fox News about a year and a half ago.
0: What's the conclusion? Collusion? No, we don't have that yet. I see. <laughs> Illusion? And delusion. So just so we're
1: clear, everyone, four words. Conclusion, collusion, no. Illusion, delusion, yes. I just thought we'd have some fun with words. uh, Sesame's Grover word of the day, perhaps, Sean. Why is she doing this? What does this tell me about Kellyanne? Well, Kellyanne's job has been to defend an indefensible president who always blames his communication staff for his own failings. We thought the task was Sisyphean. It turns out she sees it as Seussian. Kellyanne, I believe, has a soul somewhere deep in there, an actual beating heart that longs to take joy in some things in life beyond the separation of children at the border, which, of course, occasionally leads to death. And to simply get through the day and to give herself a little mental holiday, she engages in conscious coupleting i don't think her quips are useful i really don't think they get picked up i don't think they throw this interviewer off the scent of what he's or she's after i mean she has a lot of other tricks which shouldn't work but kind of do she's been known to stymie interviewers with just her usual typhoon of disinformation techniques there's the whataboutism there's the faux umbrage taking there's the turning the questioner into the story but these little rhymes help Kellyanne psychically until she has to go home at night to the house she shares with one of the most caustic Trump critics in America, her husband, George Conway. Now, if you want to tell me these little nest eggs of poems tucked inside the big omelet of propaganda, do absolutely nothing for you, just get you more upset. I understand that. If you want to say they're not cute, they're loathsome, I won't begrudge you your ire. But let's just end on this. It was never my intent or plan to provide an out for Kellyanne. Now she could go back to lying about the caravan. And that's it for today's show. Hey, I have a trivia question because at slate.com slash just news we have a newsletter. Every week we answer the trivia question. It'll come on Saturday. Here's the trivia question. What does Marie Calvin have in common with Jackie the Joke Man Martling? So much, right? If you're familiar with both their oeuvres. Also, Union Hall in Brooklyn on Saturday. I have a live show. It's a trivia extravaganza called Subdue the Guru. Go to UnionHallNY.com. There are still tickets remaining. PRB NMA and Daniel Schrader produce The Gist each Day. They have always believed that a house divided against itself is a studio at best. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, subscribes to the old presidential saw that from time to time the tree of liberty must be watered with water. I think water. Water will work well. The gist to quote a great recent president. I want abortion to be safe, legal and paid for by Elliot Brody. Oomperoo de peroo do and thanks for listening.